City recover or begin to preach the gospel. And uh, we're glad that you're here for the start of what we think is, is hopefully a movement of Jesus in our city uh, to see lots of churches planted, uh, gospel churches planted. Um, again, just to give you a kind of an introduction to what we're doing, uh, what we're about is uh, ultimately one word, Jesus. Um, and the, the stuff we've learned about Jesus, the powerful stuff about Jesus, is summarized in the Bible uh, called the Gospel. And the Gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God to save those who uh, don't believe. Uh, turn them into believers of Him and is the power to save them. We believe that's true about the Gospel. And uh, that's why everything we do on a Sunday morning is really focused in on either learning about the Gospel, applying the Gospel to our lives, or proclaiming the gospel. Some of you may have never heard the gospel. We understand that. Um, and so we won't make any assumptions and just say the gospel right up front is simply the good news about Jesus Christ, that he was an actual person, but he was God become man. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, despite what anyone says. He died a horrible Roman crucifixion death on the cross in, in payment for our sins. And so this assumes a lot of things. It assumes we need a Savior. It assumes we, we are sinners. And so part of what God does sometimes, even on a Sunday morning, is He convicts us of our sin and helps to see that we do, in fact, need a Savior and that we do, in fact, have a, a, a better Savior than the one we're presently looking for. And so, again, I just give you that up front that this is what we're all about. We've even named our church after it, Urban Grace Church. Another way the Bible talks about the love of God towards his people through Jesus is called grace. Uh, that means not getting what we deserve. And so we've even named our church after what we believe is the important message of the Bible and of the gospel. Uh, we're in a series uh, on Nehemiah, and what we're doing is we're going through uh, this ancient book of Nehemiah. If you want to turn there, uh, some of you might not know where that is. So if you can find the book of Psalms which is a larger book of the Bible, and then turn, turn left a couple of books, uh, or a couple of pages, you will find the book of Nehemiah. If you have no clue where the book of Nehemiah is, and you don't even have a Bible, I'd ask you, just put up your hand, and one of the ushers will get you a Bible and put it in your hands, and if that is the only Bible that you own, you now own it. Our only Bible you've been touching, that's, that's now your Bible, that's your gift uh, our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible because we preach from the Bible week in, week out. We, we hear from the Bible week in, week out. And we're in chapter 3. I don't know what page that is on those Bibles, 872 or something like that. Just kidding. It's something else. I don't know what it is. Um, someone who's there can just shout it out. Uh, but we're in chapter 3, and if you have no idea, but you just prefer to just listen along. And what we're going to do is, uh, this, is a, this is a bit of a different Sunday for a number of reasons. Um, if you've already turned to the text or you know what's coming, you will say, how in the world are we going to preach from Nehemiah chapter 3? Um, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through it. Uh, I think it's a brilliant chapter in Scripture. I think it's very helpful, particularly for us as a church. And then because the, the text really lends itself so much to what God was doing in and through the people in rebuilding the city wall through Nehemiah, what we're going to do is we're going to invite a couple of people who are 
we would think, strategic, gatekeeping kind of leaders in our church family and just introduce them to you and let them share a bit of their story so that you know what we're talking about. One of the things we emphasize very, very highly here is there are really two ways of, that Urban Grace does kind of ministry, does church, and that is in the big and in the small. This is the big, where we gather together, uh, we sing together, we take the Lord's table together, we hear God's word together, but then throughout the week we break out into smaller groups. We just call them the smalls uh, or city groups. So we do big and we do small. We do the bigs and we do the smalls, right? And in the smalls is where we learn about our great, great need for the gospel, our great need for Jesus, and we learn how to apply that in our lives. And if you're not connected to a city group, grab one of those connect cards, and at the end of the service, an offering plate is passed around. You can fill out whatever information you'd like to fill out and pop that right in one of those uh, plates, and uh, we'll get in contact with you about how you can get more involved in one of these smalls city groups. Um, so it's a little bit of a different twist today. I'm not going to be preaching as long. For those of you who have been here for a long time, you'll just inwardly laugh about that. But uh, we're just going to go through uh, the text and reading the text. And what I've done, just for you, is I put a map together. I drew it myself. No, I didn't draw it myself. I stole it right out of the ESV study Bible. Um, but I thought it was so helpful because as we look in the text, what is actually happening, and I looked all over the city for a very fancy dollar store laser pointer. So I can point these things out for you. But what happens is the text really starts right here, and Nehemiah does literally a, a 360 degree turnaround. Who's part of responsible for building this gate? And he lists them out in the text. So that's how you see it. it it's almost like Nehemiah is standing in the center of the city on top of a building, and he's just talking about what's happening as he kind of turns around and says, well, these people were here and these people were there. A little bit of background to this book of Nehemiah, if you're brand new, and, and what it's about and why we're studying it. Nehemiah is a book about um, rebuilding the, the city walls of Jerusalem. See, for a long, long time, about 141 years, uh, these walls, where's my pointer? These walls right here, ooh, cue the oohs, um, have been broken down, destroyed, demolished by the uh, enemy of the city of Jerusalem, Babylon. And they've crushed these walls, they've broken them down, they've never been rebuilt until God laid it on the heart of Nehemiah that he was really agonized about uh, the brokenness of his city, uh, his hometown. He had probably never lived there. In fact, I'm almost positive he had never lived there. But it seemed as though God did something in his heart. I believe God actually gave him the heart of Jesus for people. And with compassion, his heart was so broken that he said, I'm going to quit my great job in Persia, and I'm going to move back to Jerusalem. I'm going to rally the troops, and I'm going to, I'm going to be part of rebuilding this wall. They had tried it once before, and it hadn't been able to work. About 40 years earlier or so, they had tried to rebuild the walls. And uh, they couldn't get it going because of opposition. And what we find so cool in the text is that in, in 52 days, Nehemiah is able to lead the charge of rebuilding the project so fast that the opposition didn't even have time to rally together. And you think about that, yeah, that's, that's about right, even in today's terms. I mean, this is the day before you had blackberries and you could say, okay, which part of the wall are you rebuilding? Take a picture, click. Before those days, in 52 days, Nehemiah was able to 
lead the charge in rebuilding it so fast, I believe, that the opposition didn't have time to gather themselves and put up kind of opposition. And so, uh, first of all, I'm just going to pray. Um, I did not wake up feeling all that well today, and Jesus is good. I feel ready to preach. Uh, so I want to thank him and ask him if you would just open our eyes to the text. Okay. You just pray with me. Jesus, thank you again for your goodness. Thanks for your love for us. Thank you that you brought us here. I pray, Jesus, that as we try to unpack this text today, that we will hear uh, from your Holy Spirit, and we will realize our part to play in the mission you've been calling us to. Jesus, thank you for Nehemiah. Now I pray you would apply it to our hearts, and that you would convict us and encourage us and rebuke us and lead us and give us uh, a vision for the kind of mission that you have given to us, Jesus. We ask this in your awesome and holy name. Amen. Okay, there's a lot of names in here. Uh, I might not pronounce them correctly. So here it goes. Ready? Okay. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. This is over here. You see the, the sheep gate, it's right across the street from the temple. You see that right up there? So this is the temple. The sheep gate is actually in behind there. So interestingly enough, the priests build across the street from the, uh, where, where the priests work. So that's where they, where they do all their service to God. They build the gate across the street from them. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. So they built the gate, and then they built all the way to, that's the Tower of Hanel there, and the Tower of Hundred. So they built these two towers, and these two gates, and the wall in between. The sons of Hanasa built the fish gate. Don't know where they got that name. They laid its beams, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired and next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshazabal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Make a note of that. We'll come back to that. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besuida, repaired the gate of Geshana. So we're back already over here. These people were... We're building these gates. There's gates all along here. And uh, this is the gate of Yeshua. It would be an old gate to the city, right there. Uh, they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathianite, and men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Perhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. This is the guy in, in the bay when you go in at Christmas time. He squirts you with perfume as you go in. He's working on the wall, too. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So this guy is squirting perfume somewhere in there as they're being built. And it's kind of somewhere in here. We don't know exactly what's happening there uh, because a lot of this is based upon some of the excavations that they've had of Jerusalem. Um, and a, this is the original part of Jerusalem back over here. So when they rebuilt it, they actually didn't rebuild it to the same size. And so they put in somewhere here, and they're just guessing, this is the valley gate right up there. 
or the valley gate, they say, is somewhere in, in this range, but they don't know exactly. Next to them, Rabbathiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harupah, repaired opposite his house. If you don't have baby names yet, just take a look, read through Nehemiah 3, you might find one. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, that's a mouthful, repaired. Malkijai, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath, Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. So see, that's back in here, right? There's the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Take note of that as well. Ha- Hanun and the inhabitants of Z- Zenol repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Here's the dung gate all the way over here. So that's a pretty major section of, um, of the wall. Malkajai, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Take note of that. We'll come back to that. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, they had hyphenated names in those days, apparently. Ruler of the district of Mizpah repaired the fountain gate. So this fountain gate stuff is, uh, again, they, they don't know exactly where it is. They're looking for the fountain gate. It's somewhere in here. No, I can't see it anymore. Maybe it's over here. But this stuff is kind of all where the king would have had his stuff. This is the king's garden. This is the king's pool. I guess he had a separate pool. And this is the dung gate and all this stuff. That it looks like it says the stairs that go down from the city of David. So this is probably where David, the king, originally uh, lived. Somewhere in there. And he had his own kind of special palace. And you can see he kind of, kind of got a good viewpoint there. Um, he rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah. <laughs> That's everyone's favorite job. What are you building? The pool. Of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down to the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, not the same guy who's writing, the son of Azbuk, uh, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool, as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites, those are the priests again, <laughs> repaired. Rehum, they didn't just do gates, they did the wall. Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashbiah, the ruler of half the district of Kaliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Babai, the son of Hedadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. So here's the buttress here. Armory, obviously, is where you store all the weapons, so there's probably, uh, this is pretty strategic here, um, and this is also the buttress here, these two here, somewhere in there. Um, after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. That's where the high priest lives, up around there. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After, around him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. They go to that. We'll come back to that. After them, Azariah, the son of Maesai, or Maesiah, son of Aniah, repaired his own house. After him, Binui, Bini, 
Bunny, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the Ophel repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired under another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as, as, far as the wall of Ophel. So there's a big tower right there, the great projecting tower. Uh, pretty arrogant name, I guess. Um, and there's the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, horse gate's right there, aptly named probably, uh, the priests repaired each of them, each one opposite to his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imner, Imer, that's a cool name, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaliah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate. Muster gate is right there. And to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So from there, back over to the sheep gate. Wow. Any one of you went, just feel like you just read like a page of HTML code? I mean, it just feels like, whoa, that's a lot of stuff. Why are we doing that? Um, but let me, I, I always think like if, if you were part of that building project, if you want to flip that slide, Fabian, for me. Um, if you were part of that building project and your name made the Bible, you would be showing everyone that you made the Bible. That, hey, I'm in the Bible. Where? Nehemiah 3. Check it. You know, that's what you'd be saying. Um, and I think we, we gloss we gloss over these uh, these chapters so easily. There were a couple commentators, they didn't even mention chapter 3. Like, no mention of it. It wasn't like chapter 2, Nehemiah is a great leader. Chapter 4, Nehemiah gets opposition. I'm like, what about chapter 3? First of all, how the heck am I going to preach through chapter 3? Um, but as you tell a story, you notice there's lots of interesting things about this chapter, isn't there? There's a lot. It's, it feels a lot like um, you would just be recording the progress of the wall and, and how fast it was built. You see a lot of things I found, eight at least. I'm going to go through them as fast as I possibly can. Uh, before I, I do that, I want to just talk about why we built the city walls. What's the deal with the gates? What, so why those two things? Uh, first thing about uh, cities that you have to know in, in ancient Mesopotamia or ancient Palestine, um, cities really weren't considered cities until they had walls around them. Because there was just no way of... This is obviously the days before guns. We have like arrows and big hot, you know, tubs of like molten rock maybe as a defense mechanism and you need some time and you need to be high up to do all this stuff, right? So city walls really provide the only ability for a city or a, a civilization to defend itself. There really is no other way to do it. Uh, we don't have uh, radar. We don't have aerial views, we don't have a Goodyear blimp that goes around and can see people coming in. Really, you can't tell, and so city walls really represent for so many people um, safety and stability. And so you, you saw that the temple was actually built already by this time, but there was no way of defending this. 
There was literally no way of, of, of keeping people who shouldn't, who didn't want to or, or wanted to wreck the temple out. What about city gates? What did the city gates represent? Well, if walls provide protection, gates were both kind of the entry point, the very vulnerable spot, but they're also the most popular spot. There's a lot of parallels here between, I think, what's happening here in the text and, and what we're doing. But these city gates, right, you didn't, you didn't enter the city by trying to climb the wall. You entered the city through a city gate. And there's, usually there was one or two gates. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't count how many gates, but a lot of different gates for a lot of different reasons. Like, so you'd have certain gates where that's what you did at the gates and didn't do anything else. Um, what comes to mind is the dung gate. I'm pretty sure that very quickly became the only place that you dealt with dung. And that's, that, we'll, we'll talk about that a, a little bit later. Um, city gates were actually where society started to form. And uh, oftentimes you'll see throughout Old Testament passages, if you read it, that people are found discussing things at the city gates. That phrase that you see in the Old Testament, sitting at the city gates, well, there's a reason for that, because that's where your economy went. The city elders would sit there and make decisions. So it was actually a legal tribunal. So if you had a decision to make about what you should do as a city, your officials would gather and meet at the city gates. It's interesting, in the book of, I, I believe it's, it would be probably... Second Samuel, because it deals with David and his son Absalom, when Absalom, David's son, wants to try to make a revolt against David, what he does is he sits at the city gate and talks to all the influential people as they come in. Uh, the city was a place of safety. Now, we've switched that around, right? Like, most times when you tell people you go to a church in inner city, they say, is it safe in the inner city? We've kind of associated inner city with unsafeness. But in those days, they would associate safety with inner city. Oh, that's the place where everything's safe. Nobody bothers you there. Because you have organized law, you have law and order inside of the city gate. Outside, you don't have the city gate. Or, sorry, outside of the, uh, the walls, you don't have law and order. And you even see in places like Deuteronomy, where God has to institute ways of dealing with laws out in the country. Because out in the country is where it's kind of a free-for-all. I mean, we kind of have it the opposite way around, right? Most of us have been told if you really want to get, you know, a safe spiritual life, you, you head away from civilization. But in these days, you headed towards it in order to retain that safety. And so the gates represented so many different things. And what's fascinating to me is that when we talk about kind of reaching this city, I want you to actually kind of mentally think through uh, where our city gates are. Because these city gates are the places of, of economy. These are the places of influence. These are places where people frequent a lot. That's where the paths would be. That's where the entry points into the city are. And so I want you to actually kind of metaphorically think of our city like a, a, a city of Nehemiah that not just has walls but has gates too. And that the entry points of these gates are places of influence. They're businesses. They're schools. They're coffee shops. They're pubs. They're um, all those kinds of things. Last week we talked about studying the city. And, and in order to find out mentally and, and, and metaphorically where these city gates are of influence, of, of vulnerability per se, you need to study the city and know where they are. In those days it was easy. It was like, hey, that's the sheep gate. That's clearly when you want to go do business in the temple, you just go to the sheep gate. Now it's not so clear. 
And churches and Christians have typically been really bad about knowing where the gates are, where the positions of influence are in the city. It's why we planted our church right here. We think this is kind of gate-like, this area. That it is really an entry point into a lot of different cultures in in our city. And this, strategically for us, was very important because we felt like it was a place that people just will naturally frequent. And if we plant a church with the gospel there, we will be able to strategically reach people in ways that if we hadn't thought about that, we wouldn't. Um, Reminds me of a story that I was told by my friend Tyler uh, Nielsen, who uh, did some missions work. And he reminded me of, of churches that that have the gospel and want to preach the gospel, but they haven't studied their culture very well, and so they don't know the places of influence in the city, and they don't know how to reach that particular culture. And the story he told was of this great missionary uh, endeavor put on by this church where they went down to some sort of South American country, and they said, we're going to serve this South American town or city. And so what they said, I know what they need. Uh, this group said, we know what they need. They need a church building because they're meeting in houses and it's dilapidated and and you know they just need some better facilities. And so they sent this great missions team to to, to build this great corrugated iron um, building and you know celebrated it and the people were happy and thankful. And uh, they visited that same place three years later and the place was not used. There was grass everywhere. Um, it was obvious they hadn't used it, and they asked some questions simply like, well, are you not, what's wrong with the building? Well, they said, we never asked for a building. This is not the most effective way to reach this particular culture. And uh, they made a big mistake in the context that they were in of not studying that culture and finding out the gates in that city to, to reach that city with the gospel. They thought the building was the big hang-up because they came from kind of a North American uh, lifestyle where we're really hung up on buildings, but that wasn't their culture and that wasn't the way they did ministry and they missed the boat completely, spent enormous amounts of money, airfare uh, time, energy they thought they were helping and they weren't and so I think it's important for us as a church not to simply say you know, well we know the best way to reach this city before we actually know what our city is like and needs before we know where those gates are, before we know where people frequent, before we know the broken parts of the city. And so it's our challenge all throughout this series to, as we talk about repairing the gates and repairing the walls, for you to transform in your mind as something metaphorical, that, that you are part of this mission, if you so feel called to, to find the gates and to serve in the gates and to rebuild. You're like those people. And we're going to talk about people that are on our list who repaired some of the gates in our city. But we need, there was 42 different groups, or 40, 40 to 41 commentators say, different groups of people that served in this. Who gets the credit generally for rebuilding the wall? Nehemiah. Who actually built the wall? 40 groups of people. Different sizes. Apparently, the Dungate guy did it by himself. <laughs> and we'll, we're going to talk about that. But there was still like lots of different people. Everyone got, that's, that's where we're stuck. It was a team project. Everyone is involved. That's what we're starting to learn. This, it, it's, it, this is just like Urban Grace. This is just, someone asked me this past week, do you really feel like you are not ultimately responsible for getting Urban Grace to where it is? And I said, absolutely, I do not feel responsible. I feel I went first. I feel it was a, something that was my 
dream and my burden, and sometimes I felt really guilty about asking other people to be part of, of something that Jesus gave to me, and Jesus had to develop courage in me to ask other people to join that mission, but ultimately, what you see here today could not possibly happen if I was the only one doing the work. It wouldn't even be close. When I was doing all the work, we had like six to ten people. And my family, my whole family was helping out. But with groups of people, with individuals and families and family units, we have a church. I mean, we have a church that you guys come to week in, week out. We have city groups that you guys participate in week in, week out. We have a, a place to hear the gospel. We have music that I think is fantastic of people to meet. And it, I, I feel like it's just getting started. But the first thing I see is that this is a huge team effort. And if that ever is eliminated from church life, I believe we're already starting to die. And I want this to be a part of the Urban Grace DNA, that we're, we're always part of this big team. And that things will change. We're already at a point where, I think, it's embarrassing, but, I mean, less than a year ago, we couldn't get more than 20 people together on Sunday. Did, did you know that? Like, last year we would spend a year, at this time we would spend a year, uh, an hour and a half setting up so that I could yell at ten people four feet away from me. And it's kind of funny now, it seems weird, I could probably never preach that same way, but we were literally, two years ago, we were in a, in a living room. And now there's a church. How did that come to be? Because God called a number of different people with a lot of different gifts and a lot of different passions to come together and say, let's, let's team up and be part of this process. So who built Urban Grace did? You did. You did. Look around. That's who's responsible for getting Urban Grace to where it is right now. 1 Corinthians talks a lot about this. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 says, There is one body and many members. I want to read out a few verses. And just, just remind you that um, you may come in this morning feeling like, I really don't know what I have to offer. Everyone keeps talking about offering these things. I don't know what I can offer. And this is what Paul says. Now you are, are the body of Christ and individually, mem- and individually members of it. In a day and an age where the culture is kind of the, the group, he actually says you're individuals inside of this. You have individual gifts to give to the church. And God has appointed the church first apostles, so there are people that go first. Second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. If one member suffers, he says, earlier all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Then earlier he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. What Paul is saying is, the stuff you think isn't important is actually really, really important. And the stuff you think is way too important, 
is just as, just as important as the rest. And so again, the question comes up very quickly, what's your part? I don't know. Some of you serve literally, you serve the skin off your fingers. You hear all the time, you hear every week, you're playing your part. But some of you think your part is just to come and to just take from what's happening at Urban Grace, and that's not your part. Your part is to come, see the mission, hear the gospel, be changed by the gospel, but then to join the mission and become part of rebuilding the gates and the walls. Secondly, individuals and their gifts are needed. Just because they're as, team, as a team does not mean there aren't individuals. I love this passage. Like it says, you've got 40 or 41 different groups. You've got different names. You've got some people the same name, only defined differently by they were the son of Zadok or Hassaniah or whatever. It's like the same name, almost like you, you would almost read the same kind of person. But they did a different part of the gate. Some people built the gate across from them. Some did not. Some were perfumers. That's one of my favorite parts of the whole text. One of the perfumers. You can just see him go like, I ain't built that wall. You were perfumed. Look at getting dirty. Serve off. You can see the priests in the same way. Individuals and their gifts are needed. My question for you is, what are your gifts? What do you bring to this church? Did you know that when Jesus said, I give gifts to the church, he did not give the gifts for you to own, but only to steward? You don't own your spiritual gift, friend. It's not yours. It's the Holy Spirit that he gives to you to use to be part of the mission. That's why he gives gifts. Some of us are really arrogant about our gifts. Some of us don't feel good about our gifts. We feel like our gifts aren't very valuable. But regardless, we're all a level playing field here. Yeah, I know I get up and preach every Sunday. I know I lead the vision. My gifts are not more important. They may be first. They may go first. But I don't believe for a second they're more important than your gifts. We need your gifts. And they're not yours. And so part of maybe what Jesus is doing today is to say, hand over your gift to me and let me use it for what I want to use it for this church. And you're hiding it because you're afraid. Or you're hiding it because your schedule's too busy. Or whatever reason it might be. Because you're you're afraid to, to really dig in. Thirdly, I see people help out unselfishly. All these are kind of tied together. You see, actually... Uh, technically, what you have seen is is some of these um, some of these people have actually come from about a, a, a radius of 15 to 20 miles from outside. They come from the suburbs. <laughs> Sounds a lot like urban race, actually, isn't it? We do have people that live in the core that are here, but we have a lot of people that live up, that, that live well outside the urban core. And they come and they join and they help be part of this. We have people that drive from outside of town to be part of this. This is kind of what's happening in the text. People help out really unselfishly. Now these people, they don't really benefit a great deal from traveling 15 or 20 miles to rebuild someone else's city wall, right? I mean, there's, there's kind of nothing really in it for them. 
And what's interesting about that is that that's what's required to build a movement. That this is part of the Christian life. This is built right into the way we're called to serve. That we're called to serve something that isn't totally for us. I don't know if you knew this, but when we're calling you to the mission, we're not just calling you to come into Urban Grace and be kind of an exclusive group. When we call you to be on mission with Urban Grace, what we're calling you to is to be part of a mission that's not for ourselves. The we're part of building a church for those who have not heard the gospel in this city. And for whatever reason, just want, want to, but just haven't been able to connect to a church. Or haven't been able to hear the gospel. And that's why we've got these small city groups, because they're really mobile, and they're really personal, and they're in homes, and they're, you know, you can, you can, you have some work to do with context here. Uh, we don't try and serve as a big group of 70 or 80. Because it's impossible to sink our schedules like that. So we feel like that's the way that you can you can look outward. And we have to really work hard on that because we're so used to like, hey, I would like to build a family for me. I would like to build a community for me. So that I can consume. Right? And these people show very clearly there are some people that serve on a mission that really they are not able to receive a lot of benefit from. They do it because God has called them to do Jesus asked them to Fourthly, leaders are needed. You see a list of people that help, but you see a lot of the list of leaders, those who get kind of the primary way, and they really do a lot of the heavy pulling. Nehemiah doesn't take responsibility for every section of the wall. I don't even know what part of the wall he built. I'm sure he helped out where he could. But we never really see his name like he built this part of the wall. We do see leaders, though, that build. We see leaders in the, in the priesthood. The high priest. And that's the next point, that the leaders go first. And these leaders, you know, we need leaders. Just like we need people that, that follow, I, I was reflecting a lot this past week on, um, in particular, of all the people that have helped make Urban Grace what it is. And you know who I was really, really thankful for? For those that were just, you know, even two, even two years ago, showed up to serve wherever they were needed. They used their gifts when they were out. They gave their money. They committed in an age and day where committing is very difficult to do. They never <coughs> seem to complain. That's you need those people in your church. You need them a lot. But you also need people that just for some reason just feel like they, they they've got to step up and lead. What I love about our church is that, you know, these leaders don't have a position that's really like this hierarchical, authoritative position that you get if you're a super important or you're connected to the pastor or whatever. I'm very, I'm very proud, I think, in the right gospel way of the leaders that we do have, the city group leaders that we do have. And what I would say about our city group leaders is every single one of them, when they showed up, they just started, they started giving, they started serving, they started doing whatever it took, and they pulled more weight than everyone else before they ever got the opportunity to, to, to really lead. And this is the way God, I think, wants to develop leaders. That Jesus wants to develop leaders. 
you're not people that I say are more gifted than others, more theological in training than others, have more money than others, are better looking than others. The definition is you come, you leave where you are right now at this point. You do things without being asked. You put your money where your mouth is. These are leaders that are needed, and we will need more and more, and I'll be calling on a regular basis for leaders. I was saying last week, we love to double our city. We have four city groups. Over 60 of our people are connected to a city group. We're probably averaging about 75 people a Sunday, give or take. And we have have 60 people involved in city groups. They're too big on it. We're going to need more leaders, which means some of you are just going to have to step in and just start leading when you didn't feel it. You can ask any single one of our city group leaders. None of them came to me and said, I feel super gifted and really helpful to you, Trev, and uh, sign me. you should sign me up. You should thank Jesus that I'm in your church. Not a single city group leader ever said that to me. In fact, they said the opposite. I don't know, man. Are you sure? I'm not ready for this. What's it going to take? Are you sure you want me to lead your city group? That's that's what I got. And yet, and yet, I'm so pleased with what's happening. But we're we're going to need lots more. If we're going to if we ever expect to grow, we're going to have to develop more city group leaders. We're looking at maybe doubling what we've done this year, which I don't think is a super huge goal. We've quadrupled what we were last year, basically. <laughs> at this time, last year we had one city group of maybe twenty. Times that by four, that's where we're at. Leaders go first. Maybe that's just self-explanatory. You see the priests, the people who are connected to God, the closest to God, they're just the ones who go first. You see the priests at the very beginning of the text, they start with the priests, and the priests go right across the street from them, where they work. And then halfway through, you see priests at work in the other parts of the wall. Now, priests, generally are the kind of people that could actually have the excuse of not getting their hands dirty. There's actually biblical laws that say you couldn't touch certain things which would make you unclean, which would make you not be able to show up for your job as a priest. And these priests literally said, we will sacrifice and do what it takes. You see them at the end of the text. The temple servants, they're, they're serving in there. And that's what leaders do. They go first, as I was just saying. Our leaders are people that literally have stepped in and served some of the most. That's who rises to leadership in early ranks. There's no shortcuts here. And yet it's kind of frustrating because we need, we're calling for leaders and yet sometimes we have to pull back and say that you just need to serve more. We get more involved. But this is because this principle is, is a very important principle. And these leaders go first. They, they set an example. Number six, some jobs are more desirable than others. Remember the dunk gate? I couldn't find any commentator to deal with this, unfortunately. So if I'm wrong about this and you find something on the internet, which is everything on the internet is true, so you find something on the internet that's true and says something else about the dunk gate, let me know. I could not find anything about the dunk gate, but what I did find was uh, everyone else has a group of people, and the guy who rebuilt the dungate has one. It's like, it's, it's almost like Nehemiah kind of underlined that. Hanun. Hanun and the inhabitants of, uh, sorry, Mal- Malkajai, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, 
So there's one guy who's a, like a city official. He repaired the, the Dungate. He rebuilt it. He set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. There's an Old Testament law that says you can't actually burn feces inside of the camp. And so you have to take, literally, your feces outside of the city to burn it and to get rid of it. Great job, hey? What do you do? Um, yeah, I serve the city. This is the equivalent of some of our garbage collectors, maybe, that don't really have a very glamorous job, let's just put it that way. I mean, have you lifted open a, a garbage can recently? And just like, how'd you like to do that all day long every day? What if you had no garbage can and it was not garbage, it was everything? Not a very pleasant job at all. And here's, here was Mount Kajai. Mount Kajai going, oh, boy. oh boy. We got a new set of clothes, some bleach, and oh boy. You need people like that if you want to, to bring the gospel to the city. You need people who take on really unglamorous jobs that don't really get a lot of recognition, but that so desperately need to be done, done well, done right, done consistently, and done often. You know, when everything goes well on Sunday morning for our setup, we, we rarely notice kind of how well things have gone. But when it goes bad, we pray like crazy. That's why we, even on the city, there's a request. It, this doesn't, like, this doesn't just happen. Somebody's got to set this up. Somebody's got to be here at 8.30 every single Sunday so that you have an opportunity to, to hear the word. Somebody's got to practice. You know, that stuff happens. And is there other jobs? You know, this is where you, you, know, you can't just serve inside of the things that you're gifted in. Sometimes you have to serve, like, I'm really doubtful that uh, Malkajai went, well, I have the spiritual gift of shoveling crap. I don't think so. That's not a spiritual gift as far as I know. That's one of those, I just got to get done, and who's going to do it? No one else does it, I'll do it. Got to get done. And everyone else like, it's totally got to get done. And you'd notice if he didn't do his job, right? You'd notice if they didn't have a place to exit the city with the dump. And that's what's required. You want to rebuild the city. People that do jobs that they don't feel really gifted in, that they do them anyways, because they just need to get done. Seventh thing I see is people don't help out in their own neighborhood. There were some city leaders and rulers that quite simply would not help out. Wouldn't help out. Scholars do not think that it's a matter of not being able to, but it says in verse 5 of chapter 3 that the coins repaired, but the nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. So you see that kind of the lay people, they served, but the leaders of those lay people, they would not stoop. Nehemiah didn't mean like they couldn't bend over. That's not what he meant. He meant they would not they would not sink to that level. They were too good for those jobs. I mean, I had the guys, I was like, okay, no more rubble today because we're like, we've actually started to rebuild the wall. But I, I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like of hauling like big blocks of rock away in like 
hot, dusty Palestine. I mean, you'd be like, oh, that's my experience. I guess I'd love to do that for three seconds. It's, it's, it's pretty ugly work. And they just wouldn't assume it. It's, it's kind of a challenge. Again, there were people who just said, no, I'm too good for that. I'm too gifted for that. I'm going to go hang out with the perfumers. <laughs> it's a good challenge for us. One of the things in Urban Grace, you just think you're too good for it. So much of what makes Urban Grace Urban Grace is the people behind the scenes. I mean, someday, just for fun, come and serve on Sunday morning set up at any table. And if you did it, if there was a hidden camera, you would see certain people here every single Sunday. But if they didn't do their job, you would know us. Is there something here that's just too good? And it's a good challenge for us. Sometimes we just have to get dirty and do things that we don't feel called to or gifted for. And that's quite honestly aren't very fun. You know, I, uh, a friend of mine said uh, a while ago, I love the quote. It's like, when we talk about mission, mission sounds so fun to talk about. Oh, I could talk about mission all day. But he said, when you're doing mission, you're thinking, when am I done? Like, that's what it's like sometimes. <coughs> Mission doesn't seem all that fun when you're in it sometimes because it's hard work. It's easy to talk about it here. It's harder to do it. Lastly, people built in their neighborhoods. This is where I want to transition and bring some of our friends up just to share their stories. Because um, what you have is regularly throughout the text, these people build across the street from them. So what had happened is like Jerusalem, the temple was rebuilt, but really the inside of the city was not very inhabited. Later on, Nehemiah will actually draw straws, like throw dice. One out of ten people have to move into the city. How'd you like to play that game? It's like Russian roulette for real estate agents, right? So, so there's nothing really in the city yet. And he's calling them to, to like... Why don't you build the stuff across the street? That's what we expect our city groups. That's why we call them city groups, because they're groups in the city, and we really try hard to, to get them as geographical as possible. It's not completely possible because, yeah, some of you love Jesus and are willing to drive crazy kilometers to get here and be part of the city group. And I'm really thankful of Jesus for that. But essentially what we're hoping that our city groups do is they serve the neighborhood that's across the street from them. That they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the gate that's across the street from them that they see and they know. And they, they would pour time and effort into that like few other people because that's the gate and the wall they have to look at possibly for the next, well, their lifetime. Right? You see their work every time you visit the city. Oh, that's where that person rebuilt the wall. And that's where, you know, city groups have just made so much sense to, to even talk about this. That that's why we're trying so hard to challenge you to study the city in your neighborhood. And, and I know that some of you don't live in that neighborhood. We're calling you to serve in that neighborhood. I get that. Hang in there. Eventually, it'll get more geographical. We've noticed in our city group that we started about, what, over a year ago? Somewhere in there? We're almost getting to where about maybe a third of our people actually live in the neighborhood. It takes time. 
hang in there. You'll probably have to serve in a neighborhood that's not your own for a while if you really want to join the mission. That's part of it. But eventually, what we'd love to see is like the Sunnyside City Group that we're a part of is filled with people in Sunnyside. So that when someone says, well, what's your church like? We can say, well, just check out the group. That's what our church is like. All these people that you know. And it's happening. We're finding great traction in this. And so we're, what I wanted to do is, some of you don't know who our city group leaders and what they're about. And so I just, I'm going to interview them very quickly and just kind of introduce them to you. I'll ask my buddy Pete to come up. Um, no one will like that I do this, but Pete has been here almost right from the start. Um, and uh, Pete's been a very close friend of mine, and, and he serves much more than you guys can imagine. Uh, we're going through nonprofit stuff. It's a Dungate-type material, I think. He would say that too. Uh, Pete put up his hand and said, I'll get it done. I'll make sure that happens. Uh, he's that kind of guy, and so I thought, I asked Pete to lead the first city group, so this my questions are simply, when did you become a city group leader? Uh, yes, started started city leadership on uh, back in April this year. Took the, took the second one and um, just kind of did it because the room was getting full. That's really what, what, uh, what uh, happened. That's, that's how it went down. Um, what do you, just starting the previous, when did you get connected to Urban Grace and feel the call there? Um, I got connected uh, October 2010, so a couple of years ago, and just showed up. I showed up to the basement of Park Del Rey Scholarship. They were they were waiting for me, and uh, walked in. I remember walking into the fireside room. <laughs> How many people were there? I think there were ten. And everyone each other, very clearly, that I was the guy. So I kind of like folks around the table. And that's, yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't a glamorous call. I, I told Trevor yesterday that uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have this, this glamorous experience of the call. I just saw that there was a meeting um, and, and, and tried to call it for the world that's called. That, that happened in regards to union culture, urban grace, and also to city leadership. Just like, well, we need a women group, so, so I'll go. And I think the people in my group back in the book test that that definitely wasn't, wasn't the best leader I'd have wanted to run. Um, but we learned and do and just go forward. So, yeah. Pete's, Pete's real straight. Is uh, he knows very very well the the gates in the city. I count on Pete to. We spent a bunch of time in January here going around to see just the, just how the city was being built up and just the different gates and the different opportunities. Uh, so Pete's one of those guys that just has eyes for that, and I really appreciated that. Um, and I I basically begged him. I mean, he just kind of said, "Are you sure? Are you sure I could do this?" He wanted to do it, but. Um, and, uh, we're I have no theological training. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but he, he has the gospel, and um, his last name is Pete Spencer. Pete, and you're in Beltline, yeah. living with Bungalow Mission. Okay, thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. Um, you you can appreciate Pete as well. 
We don't, we don't have time for everyone's story. Uh, the next on the list was uh, uh, Steve and Fritzy Pelzer, uh, affectionately known as Pilsners. Um, and that's not actually because he likes beer, but uh, they were kind of next in line. Um, we don't have time fully for their story today, but uh, here's another couple that really was somewhat suspicious of what was going on in Urban Grace at the beginning. They didn't jump in right away, kind of took their time, um, wanted to see what I was like, wanted to see if they could handle hour-long messages every Sunday and music on an iPod. Uh, but once they committed, they just never, never stopped serving. They also said, don't really feel totally ready for a city group, but understand that there's a great need here. Um, great stories, I think, that I'm hoping I'm not telling your story too much, but um, Jesus has done some really cool things in terms of their hearts for the city and even living in the city. They happen to live in Hillhurst, um, but Jesus has really kind of... Uh, help them to see the great need of the city and uh, we have two kind of city lovers right there that love and enjoy the city and are serving us very well. Steve also doubles as, uh, does a lot of sound, does music um, and those two guys are probably, they sit officially on our church board. We had to do it for the government's sake um, to, to come up with kind of like a some sort of a board making decisions so Steve Pelzer and Pete Spencer and myself comprise that board, um, but both are what I would consider elder candidates and we're moving toward kind of making an official elder thing. Um, third city group that just uh, came out of our city group directly, the first time we split off in our city groups, um, well Pete took half of my group and then uh, Steve and Fritzy took half of Pete's group and half of my group, and so there was a lot of getting to know each other. Uh, the third time was probably the most, um, probably what I felt was maybe the easiest transition, although it was still hard because we grew to really love everyone in our group. It always happens. Um, but Nate and Sarah took the group just a couple weeks ago, and I'd, I'd like them to come up now and just share briefly their story as well. Um, a very different story from Stephen Fritzy and Pete, uh, but nonetheless really helpful. So you guys, you share, you figure out who's going to answer what, but um, just just first of all, how did you, when did you feel called to Urban Grace? Yeah, I think it started even even before we even heard about Urban Grace. Uh, we knew that uh, the church we were attending wanted to be more involved in, and it just so happened that the leader there was going on sabbatical and. We started searching around and ran into Leslie, you know, by, by chance. And next thing you know, we were checking out every place. When did you become city group leader, sir? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. <laughs> so very new, very fresh. How did you feel that call to Urban Grace and to city group leadership? How did that go? Uh, for me. I uh, knew that I had to get uncomfortable to continue growing the gospel and my relationship with Jesus. So it was kind of like, okay, I need to do this. Um, obviously, being a part of your city group and watching it grow so fast and how much of an impact it had on our relationship and our growth, um, we knew that with the, the core here getting much bigger, that we 
needed to step up and provide a, another group to allow others to experience what we've experienced. So that's a big part of it. Yeah, I just, I just add to that too. Um, when we were first approached by you, I mean, I was like, you're crazy. <laughs> There's no way. But uh, yeah, it's just a lot of growth that happened. Uh, just understanding that we didn't have to be perfect leaders right off the bat, or any, at any time for that matter. Um, I just you know, had faith that what we needed to get uh, accomplished would, would get accomplished. Not necessarily through our own efforts. Um, what can you tell us anything about that Jesus has kind of done in you personally, both of you, uh, at, through Urban Grace, or just recently? Doesn't even have to be through the actual church. Just what, what has Jesus been doing in your lives, teaching? You? Yeah, a lot of um, just relying on faith that uh, I don't have to have all the answers. We don't have theological backgrounds by any means, and our stories are very you know, not gospel-centered. And I think it it, uh, it it taught us that we can relate to people pretty well. Yeah, just that fact of getting uncomfortable again, and that that's okay. I'm one that always needs to know the answers before you know months in advance. And uh, when you first kind of approach us, you actually just found out we were expecting as well. So it's like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to get uncomfortable. This isn't going to be easy. And that's uh, yeah, <laughs> two ways. And um, that's just what he's, he's called me to do. And that he'll provide the answers and I don't need to know. <laughs> Great. Thank you, guys. You can give the... <laughs> They, they are leading a group that's uh, our first experiment toward a suburban city group uh, over in Silver Springs. Um, and so if you're in the Northwest, we'll probably try to plug you in there. Um, yeah, it's, again, a great story. Pete comes from a church background, and Stephen Fritzy both came from church backgrounds. And Nate and Sarah's story was slightly different than that, and it was cool to hear uh, particularly Sarah share sometime in the summer she felt like she was just getting the gospel in the time here. I, I wanted to say that, not to embarrass her, but to remind you that if you don't totally get how the gospel works right now, in a year from now, you could be a city group leader. It, it went that fast. Like, they joined us in some late, uh, it, was, it was probably May, right? Or early, late April or early May. And within a year, they were both, I think, perfectly capable. Not because I thought they knew how to go systematically through all of the theology, but because I felt like they actually loved and believed this gospel enough to tell other people and show them the gospel in their own lives. Um, so thanks to Nate and Sarah. Uh, a big important part of what we do here is, is uh, a music, and you know, I, I'm not going to ask Tim and Simon to come up, but I'm going to ask Tom, who's kind of the leader and representative of this, to come up. Uh, a little background. I've known Tom... More than most of you uh, in this church, uh, Tom served with me in Bowdoin, so I've known him for, I think, what, seven years at the very least, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, again, just want to tell you, when you, can you tell about a little bit about your experience of being called Urban Grace? Yeah, um, so I, uh, because uh, Trevor was my mentor while we were both, both still in Bowdoin, I got to witness the 
progression of God calling him to being a church planter. And he uh, kind of shared with me uh, his, his thoughts, and so I, I kind of grew with the same mentality as uh, he did um, while God was, was changing his heart. Um, and so I, uh, I was in Calgary already, um, going to school in Mount Royal, um, and then they, they decided to make the move. Um, and I, I actually ended up moving back to Olds, um, um, my hometown. And uh, I tried to, I stayed connected for a little while. I, I attended, and uh, then kind of around the time where we actually got into city groups um, and started focusing on uh, the community aspect of, uh, of the church, um, I, was, I just felt so uh, disconnected. And um, while the Urban Grace community was uh, really, really developing, I was uh, in old and I got quite alienated um, from the church, and I um, stopped, stopped coming, um, stopped uh, serving, and um, <clears throat> really actually got quite disconnected, uh, even with, with uh, uh, the Wysavvies and uh, lots of people here, and then I did, then I returned back to school and uh, went through um, a time of being in Calgary and still not going to Urban Grace, which I, I promised Trevor that I would, I would start going to Urban Grace, but I, I, I didn't because um, I was just in a weird, weird place. Um, but then uh, I got sick of that, that weird place and I was depressed and stuff and I uh, um, asked God, like, I, I mean, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm saved, saved by grace, I should be, I should be glad and um, glad in you and so he did and then he called me her to Urban Grace it like happened at the, at the same time and so I showed up to Citigroup and um, just got um, um, involved uh, I remember uh, I came to a Sunday morning service and uh, felt at home for the first time in, in the city because um, I'm not from the city and for the longest time I actually really really disliked Calvary and so that's uh, what God, God changed my heart there. Um, and I, I uh, <clears throat> fell in love with Urban Grace, and I fell in love with the, the city too and wanted to, uh, wanted to serve. Um, yeah, a little, little background to that totally is, is again, we have another example of, of when I met Tom and the Holy Spirit taught me a lot of patience that only only Jesus can truly break your heart for the city. Only he can really give you the passion because um, I saw lots of great gifts in Tom. I felt he was really creative. Uh, I felt like musically he wouldn't be too churchy, so he would really help our music stuff. I always have believed in Tom. always wanted to see him with an opportunity like, what if, you know, you were just given a free reign to do what you thought you could do musically. Um, and having served with him and kind of feeling like he couldn't do that, I couldn't wait for him to see that, but God tested me out too and said, be patient, just let him come around uh, or let him stay away, it's my decision. And uh, Jesus thankfully brought Tom in and Tom is another one of those guys and when he came in, I mean, Tom's had you know, two breaks, maybe three since April. Two, three times that he has not played music here. Um, he serves faithfully. I can't imagine another person his age at his point in, in school that serves in a church as actively as he does. And he leads a lot of our music and I think uh, yeah, started this concert thing as well. And he's one of those gates. 
He's one of those gatekeepers that is rebuilding that gate of music within our community. So uh, you can call your band up, and I'll just thanks, Tom. Thank him. And uh, now we close. And really, this is uh, this is the time that's designated for us, really, for a time of repentance. Uh, there will be some things that the Holy Spirit will have said to you that you just need to ask forgiveness for and say, I'm not paying attention to this. There are some things that the Holy Spirit will have reminded you for. There will be some people here that will be very encouraged because the Holy Spirit said, you're doing this. You've done what I asked you to do. Just celebrate. Like I said, I'm saved. You're saved. Let's celebrate it together. So this is like a family meal. It's really celebrated. Um, we ask that if you don't believe in Jesus, that you not partake. Not because we don't want you to partake, but because it doesn't really mean anything to you then anyways. That what you do when you're partaking is you're simply proclaiming um, that Jesus Christ has put you in a position to be saved. And that he has paid the price for you. That's why we have bread and that's why we have wine, grape juice, depending on what you'd, you'd like to do, what you'd like to partake. These represent the broken body of Jesus. These represent the blood of Jesus shed for you. He did do this to save you, but one of the things that we're saying here as well, he also did this so that he could put you on mission and give you his Holy Spirit to do that mission. And so as we respond here, I just simply want you to, again, enjoy the goodness of Jesus Christ, to repent for your sins, uh, to make plans to change, and just enjoy the goodness of what you see around you, and be thankful for your city group leaders, your, your music people, your setup people, all the people that have made this possible for you to be here this morning to hear the gospel. I want you to just simply thank Jesus as you sing.